Welcome back to another episode of the Gillette Health Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Taylor Martin, who is a preventive medicine physician, and he's interested in improving health outcomes through the use of data sharing, decision support, and monitoring of aggregated health data. He attended medical school at A.T. Still University in Chicago and completed a preventive medicine residency and Master's of Public Health at John Hopkins Health System in Baltimore. He is currently completing a clinical informatics fellowship and a Master's of Clinical Research at the UCLA Health System and works as a preventive medicine physician for Gillette Health, seeing patients in the LA area and via telemedicine. In his free time, Dr. Taylor enjoys bike riding, gardening, and learning to surf. So uh, Dr. Martin, very excited to have you on here. I'm really excited to talk all things preventive medicine, um, go through some recent studies that have come out in this field, talk about uh, the integration between data, technology, and providers. Um, but first, I guess we'll start at the beginning, kind of what steered you towards medicine to begin with? Well, thanks so much for having me, James. I'm excited to be here. Um, I, so I was born and raised in, in Arizona and kind of from an early age, I, I knew I wanted uh, to help people and, and have a big impact. Um, my mom was a pharmacist, so I was kind of around healthcare and, and that seemed like um, one of the best options. I've always been interested in kind of the mix of um, technology and communication and people skills. And uh, it seems like medicine um, is a good industry that kind of mixes those two and, and you have to use both. Uh, and I love to learn. I want to be a lifetime learner. Um, and in healthcare, there's unlimited things to stay up to date with and um, keep learning. So that's what really drew me to it. Um, kind of the last thing was I had realized that we had spent just constantly in the news, we were talking about how much money was being spent on healthcare and how much effort um, and how much time was put into it. And it just seemed like a lot of the, the promises that have been made um, don't come to fruition. So it seems like um, an area that could use some improvements. That's what really drew me towards it. Um, and then as I was going through medical school, I I did become a little bit disillusioned, a little bit disappointed with the impact that I was having. I was seeing patients kind of on a one-on-one -on -one basis, and I felt like um, I wasn't really having that kind of big impact that I was really looking for. Uh, and that's kind of where I found preventive medicine and kind of looking at more upstream ways that we can improve health outcomes. Um, so that's kind of been my, my story through medicine. Yeah, it, I think medicine really is, at least now, is a beautiful marriage of you know science and technology. Uh, we certainly come a long way from bloodletting in medieval Europe. Um, and then as far as the you know, preventive piece of that, just like you said, you know, eventually you go upstream to see why people are washing down the stream. So uh, I know that's your interest in preventive medicine specifically. Um, but as far as, I guess, preventive medicine, what does that mean to you? Because there's different levels of prevention. We could talk about, you know, primary, secondary, tertiary, and then kind of what that looks like in application um, and what can be done better and what has gotten better recently. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good point. Um, that's kind of how I characterize it as well, primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. So primary prevention is preventing disease from occurring. Secondary prevention is identifying disease early. And tertiary prevention is preventing disease from causing late stage outcomes. Um, so in the example of, let's say, diabetes, uh, 
primary prevention, you're preventing people from getting diabetes in the first place with diet and exercise. Secondary prevention, you're identifying it early. So you're um, screening for your hemoglobin A1C and um, identifying it early. And then tertiary, it's getting people the right care they need um, so that the diabetes doesn't hurt their, their eyes or their nerves or um, some of these other kind of late stage organ system uh, failures that you get from these diseases. So that's kind of how I think about it. Um, Preventive medicine is actually one of the, it is the oldest specialty in the United States. It was the very first specialty, um, but it's a pretty small specialty and it's only at a few institutions in the United States. Uh, a lot of the hospitals in the US are a fee for service model. And so they're billing insurance um, for each encounter that they have. Uh, but there's a few health systems in the United States that um, are paid for a little bit differently and they're paid for by their outcomes. And so they really incentivize preventing disease from happening as opposed to just treating disease as it happens. And so that's where a lot of these preventive medicine training programs have uh, popped up. Um, so I did my training at Hopkins um, and this was right during the COVID pandemic. So a lot of my uh, kind of clinical day-to-day -day work was focused on COVID and um, identifying patients with COVID and developing systems to uh, prevent COVID from happening. Um, I spent a lot of time in just a primary care clinic, uh, working alongside primary care doctors, um, preventing some of these, these chronic diseases. Um, yeah, did that answer the question? Yeah, I think that's great. And I didn't realize that preventive medicine was actually the oldest specialty. Um, that, you know, the business of keeping people healthy goes, you know, way back. So I think that's really interesting. Um, and then if we look at, you know, for example, the you know, recommendations for the ASCBD risk calculator, um, where, you know, typically the guidelines will say you're initiating, for example, like a statin therapy. Once somebody crosses a certain threshold, you know, let's say 10% risk over the next 10 years, or um, USPTF guidelines, which, you know, are applied at a population level, how do you take that and then also look at, let's say, a, a patient's individual factors that maybe, you know, everybody's going to be different. So no guideline is going to fit perfectly to every single patient. Yeah, I think you articulated it well. There's um, like there's population specific data and then there's individualized predictive data and those don't necessarily align while they often do align and can be used for clinicians. Um I kind of think of it in this idea of ecological fallacy. And so you can't, and this, it's the idea that you can't apply um, like a population level average to an individual. So like maybe there's an example of we're trying to compare heights between you're in Kansas and I'm in California. So the, the height of people in Kansas, let's say the average is six feet and the height of people in California, let's say the average is five feet. Can I predict your James's height um, since I know that you live in Kansas? Um, well, no, not really, because there's a lot of other factors that go into it that isn't just categorized by which state we're in. Like maybe uh, if I'm a male or a female, it's going to have a big difference on my height. That's uh, kind of a binomial distribution. Men are generally taller than women. And so the, the, um, the men will be aggregated up here and the women will be aggregated down here. You know, age is also another example. If I'm five or if I'm 15 years old, that's going to have a, a big impact on my height, kind of unrelated to the state that I'm in. Um, so this idea of ecological fallacy is you, you can't apply these uh, group averages to individual patients. It's a maybe a good place to start, um, but there's all these other factors that you're not quite aware of. And, and kind of another point on that is um, an average isn't uh, like diagnostic of an entire group. You know, the average is just 
yeah, what it is is the average. And so there's a bell curve of going back to this example of heights, say you're at the average, you're at the 50% mark for height. Um, depending on how much those bell curves overlap, there could be still 40% of people in California who are still taller than you. Um, and so I might be in that 40%. So you can't really say that you're taller than me um, just because our states have uh, differences in the average. So I think this is an important concept to think about when looking at population health guidelines. Um, the, the USPSTF, the United States Preventive Services Task Force, task force um, does put these together. And so they are, it's a national guideline. So it's for people throughout the United States and they, they evaluate specific diseases and well-defined prevention services, and then look at the evidence for uh, specific health outcomes. Um, I think it's a good place to start for clinicians, especially busy clinicians who are um, seeing lots of patients and uh, need to stay up with the evidence. Um, but it's not necessarily the best for individualized care for, for a few different reasons. Um, before I get into that, I think one important thing to note about the USPSTF is they don't uh, intake cost data. I always found that a little bit interesting. Um, they, they're only looking at health outcomes. Um, I think there should be probably an organization that does pull in cost data because costs uh, are becoming exorbitant in the United States. But, but just so everybody knows that they're not looking at costs at all. They're just purely looking uh, for health outcomes. But one of the limitations is this, is that it's focused on uh, younger patients and leaves a lot of the older patients out of the data that is used for this um, guideline production. Um, Partially that's because as you age, the diseases become multifactorial and have multiple different interventions. So it's hard to parse out uh, those risk factors. Another is a lot of research kind of cuts off adults at 65. So it's 18 year olds to 65 year olds and we're not getting that data for those after 65. Um, and I think it's also a bias towards quantitative data over the qualitative data. And so we look a lot at uh, mortality instead of maybe looking more at like quality adjusted years of living or looking more at the quality of your life. Um, so I think, especially for older patients, uh, the USPSTF has some, some limitations. Um, I think there's also uh, a lot of it is focused on. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. 
Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Secondary prevention, so identifying disease, and not so much on primary prevention. Kind of going back to the same thing with the older adults. I think this is because of a selection bias of the, the data. I think a lot of the research is about identifying disease and not so much about preventing it. Um, and so that data doesn't get incorporated into these guidelines. And then in just by nature of it being something that looks at all the evidence and then develops these meta-analyses, which is basically a single score based on what all the different evidence showed, uh, it lags behind um, kind of the current clinical care quite a bit because it waits for research to get published and then waits for enough of that research to get published that they can put together this analysis. So it doesn't really include some of the cutting edge stuff, um, some of the really innovative stuff, um, and then some of the more rare stuff that it's hard to publish on. So I think it's a, a good place to start. Um, and I like to go there uh, and find articles to go to, uh, but I don't let it dictate my uh, individualized care to patients. I think you know your care goal should really be uh, specific to what the patient wants um, through a conversation with them. Do you care about the length of time do you, that you live? Do you care about the quality um, or is it somewhere in between that? Yeah, I think that's a really fair assessment, uh, in, especially the, the positive that it's a great place to start and a great place to find some of those larger trials that they're looking at uh, and some of those, you know, meta analyses like you mentioned. Um, and then also, I didn't know that they didn't actually take the financial data or, or the financial burden into account there. It's strictly looking at, you know, outcomes data. So that was really interesting to me. Um, as far as when we're looking at the population health, you know, like say, in the United States, and I think a great historical example of this was, you know, smoking. So a lot of efforts were made to educate people once it was, you know, conclusively linked that, you know, smoking was causing lung cancer and heart attacks and all these adverse health outcomes that we know of, you know, and, and it's right there on the, you know, warning label today with those tobacco products. Um, could you talk a little bit about what that process looked like, and then perhaps how that could apply to a, you know, a, a health disaster today or, or um, I guess, a pathology that we see very commonly in the public population today, if there's an example of that. Yeah, smoking is a great example of a, a huge public health win, um, although it took a very long time and a lot of effort uh, to get. Um, it, clinicians had identified that smoking was associated with lung cancer and other health outcomes pretty early on, but it took a while to move in the direction that we have are more preventing it through these upstream things causing primary prevention. Um, but this kind of came with all three tiers of prevention kind of developing at the same time. So as we were learning that smoking was associated with, with lung cancer and heart disease and stroke and all these things, we started developing better ways of identifying it. And so kind of going back to the USPSTF, they recommend getting um, a low-dose CT for if you've had 20 years of smoking history. So that's a way of identifying um, lung cancer early uh, in, in smokers. And they also, there's been a lot of tertiary prevention that's been developed uh, alongside that with um, 
uh, oncology and radiation and some of the surgeries that we have. Um, and then with enough lobbying, we were able to really move in the direction of primary prevention. So increasing taxes on cigarettes, limiting where they're sold, um, campaigns on trying to get it away from uh, children and um, not on TV and not um, during sports games and, and not kind of constantly in your face, um, as well as limiting who can get them. So making it so only people over 18 um, can get them. I think this is a good example to keep in mind because there was big in like industry incentives to keep the process going and keep selling cigarettes, um, which made it so, take so long for us to, to get to where we are now, where finally um, the the rates of cigarettes are, are dropping pretty significantly. Um, so kind of the big public health issue in my mind now is obesity. And I see a lot of similarities between obesity um, and, and smoking. Kind of just quickly talking about obesity and, and why it's an issue. Uh, it's related to many different diseases, heart disease, metabolic syndrome, stroke, diabetes, cancer, just to name a few of them. And the prevalence, which is all the people that are diagnosed with obesity has increased pretty dramatically in uh, the very recent years um, from 30% to 40%, just from 1999 to, to now. So now four to 10 adults um, in the United States are obese, um, which is concerning and it's increasing. We also see increasing rates of obesity with children, um, which is which is disturbing. This is associated with high healthcare costs, which drives all healthcare costs up, um, as well as a high cost for individuals. I think it's it's like fifteen hundred dollars a year um, extra for people who are obese that they end up spending in, in healthcare costs. So uh, it certainly affects people, and it doesn't affect all people the same either. Uh, lower socioeconomic status. Um, People, people with lower education and, and certain racial groups have higher prevalence of obesity. Um, so it's unequally distributed amongst our population too. So it's a, a very serious issue. Um, and there's industrial forces that uh, incentivize increasing selling um, unhealthy foods to people and not a lot of incentive to, to decrease the cost of obesity, decrease the amount of obesity. I think part of this is the treatment, the best treatment for obesity is a mix of a good diet, exercise, and really good counseling from a multidisciplinary team. But that is, um, it's kind of hard to make money on those things. It's not a surgery or a procedure that you can do. It's not a, a medication that you can drive up costs and sell a bunch of. Um, there certainly are uh, bariatric surgeries and some, some really good medications for weight loss. Um, but those can't just be done on themselves. They need to be done in conjunction uh, with diet, with exercise and really good counseling. And, and that really is the base. And there's no financial incentive um, for that. If anything, the healthcare system is structured in a way that it incentivizes more people to become obese because you can bill for those encounters. So I don't think there's like malicious doctors who, who want people to be obese um, or want increased volume. I've never, never heard that in my life. If anything, I want, I hear a lot of doctors wanting decreased volume, but the way the system is structured, it's structured in a way that the, the hospital makes money every single time someone comes into it. So there's no financial incentive to decrease the amount of obesity. Um, and so a lot of the effort gets put into managing late stage diabetes or strokes or congestive heart failure. Um, and we're really good at that in the United States. That's where all the research goes. And that's where at UCLA, most of my work is figuring out how to optimize those kind of things because we can make money on those. 
but we're not focused on preventing the obesity from even happening in the first place. So I think there's, it's kind of twofold here. One is we need um, financial incentives to decrease it, but then also there's these outside forces that want to keep selling junk food, high sugary foods to um, our population. That is kind of preventing us from moving in that direction. So I think it's a mix of kind of restructuring our healthcare systems um, and really lobbying against these, these companies. Yeah. And you, that's a very good overview of how you can take kind of the situation of smoking and some of the measures that were taken there from a public health standpoint, and then applying those to the current situation with individuals overweight and obese. And, you know, even as staggering as some of those figures are, you know, 40% obese, 70% overweight, it's a bit of a lagging indicator because we have people that are trending in that direction. So, you know, 10 years from now, I wouldn't be surprised to see those continue to increase all things remaining equal. Um, and then another piece of that, I think um, you, you mentioned to the environment, the companies, the drivers of this, that obesogenic environment. And when you take these, you know, cultures that are historically thin, you know, with normal BMI, and they don't have these diseases of, you know, calorie excess, um, and then they are, you know, transplanted or, or they immigrate to the United States, you see over generations, the same, you know, stereotypical Western diseases start to develop in these traditional healthy populations. So to me, that means that the, you know, obesogenic environment, as we tend to call it in, you know, obesity medicine is um, a big driver of this. Yes, I would absolutely agree. Um, I think there's probably some genetic component, but I think a lot of it is environment, as you mentioned. Um, and, that, and that's a great example of how it is. Yeah, and then I guess analogous to, you know, you know, tobacco and the nicotine. Now we have the the vapes um, and vaping nicotine that a lot of, you know, people are using a lot of young people are using and even, you know, kids in high school, middle school. And I, th I think the data was less clear initially, like when these things first came out, it was like, oh, this is, you know, painted in a very positive light, it's going to help people stop smoking. And then, you know, as the data has come out, and they've tried to make these things enticing to people with these, you know, flavor additives, you know, vanilla, cinnamon, et cetera, um, that some of those additives and chemicals, you know, they, they certainly have toxic effects, you know, in vitro when they're studying them in the lab and in animal models. And I believe there's starting to come in some more human data about, you know, how these things are not all that great for our health. So, I mean, how do we go about this? Because it's kind of like, oh, well, we know cigarettes are bad, uh, but then I guess vaping is painted as the less bad alternative. Yeah, that's a good point. It's kind of, um, we're balancing between evidence-based, waiting for the evidence to come out before we recommend something and being innovative and, and moving in new directions. That vape is the a perfect example of that. We realize that combusting um, tobacco and inhaling it is is bad. And so maybe if we're not combusting it, um, it'll be less, uh, less negative on your health. Um, theoretically, that makes sense. Um, but then it was put into practice and all these companies started making money on it. And then realizing, oh, we can make more money if we flavor it in this way and market it to children. Um, and so then tons of this flooded in and there wasn't good research on it. Um, and now we are starting to get those research and starting to pull back a little bit. Um, we, I think they removed uh, the, the legality for um, some of the flavoring in, in the vapes um, for this reason. So I think it's a balance of, yeah, moving in, in sticking with things that are evidence-based and there's enough evidence for, but realizing that the evidence lags. And so um, to really be moving in an innovative way, we have to be pushing the boundary a little bit. Um, 
And so it's kind of taking a little bit of risk using some basic uh, science that we do have, um, and then monitoring results um, and updating the evidence as we we find it. Yeah, and, and I think it speaks to just how industry is going to most of the time outrun science to some degree. And then there's always the risk of the unknown whenever there's something new out. So, you know, we don't know everything about it, but, you know, not knowing is a bit of a risk because it could have, you know, we're talking about a fill in the blank intervention. It could be positive, could be negative, could be positive short term and have negative long term effects. So I think that was a really uh, interesting conversation discussing public health. And I think people will really take some value away from that specific section of this. Um, but as far as, you know, some recent headlines, and I figured this is right up your alley. Um, I saw a paper come out in the New England Journal of Medicine, and they were looking at, you know, colonoscopies and the effect of colon cancer screening. How does that translate to people's outcomes? And I saw all kinds of headlines with this. So people talked about, oh, well, you know, now colon cancer screening, colonoscopies, they don't work, don't get them done. And I don't think that's the case. Um, but, you know, people were kind of freaking out about these headlines. And you know, maybe you can help people understand how sometimes the data gets distorted uh, and then the media kind of runs with it. Yeah, yeah, happy to. Um, I mean, one thing to note on that, it was just looking at colonoscopies and there's other ways of checking for colon cancer, um, Flexig being um, another, another great option. Um, but this was just looking at, at colon cancer screening. Um, and I think one of the limitations when, when looking at this is sometimes they report relative risk reduction. So how much, um, how much the intervention group is improved compared to the control group. Um, and I think for this specific study, it was like 18% or 20%. So 18% improvement or 20% improvement. That sounds pretty good. Um, but I think an important thing when I'm here relative risk, I always want to hear what the absolute risk is as well. So I can compare those two. So what is the absolute risk of developing colon cancer? And then what's the absolute risk of even dying from colon cancer? Um, and if the absolute risk of dying from colon cancer is really low, like 1% normally, an 18% drop from that doesn't really change it that much in my opinion. Um, and so how much does that really benefit you? Now, if the absolute risk of developing it is 60%, then a 20% decrease in that, um, it's hard for me to calculate that off the top of my head, but that would be a, a significant drop in your overall risk. Um, so that's one thing I always like to think about. The other thing is I think it reported the absolute, the absolute or all-cause mortality and uh, mortality from uh, colon cancer. And I think it did not change anything in all-cause mortality, um, but it did change uh, the risk in uh, mortality caused from cancer risk. Um, so this kind of goes back to the, the same topic of uh, what is your personal risk of developing colon cancer? If you might not die of colon cancer, but are going to die of something else. Um, does identifying colon cancer early really help you that much? Um, no. Now, knowing that early in life is hard. And so that's why we, we do these screening tests. And it is a, a personal decision with your physician. Uh, but I think that's where some of the, the headline confusion came from looking at, oh, it doesn't change anything in all cause mortality. Therefore, it's not helpful well, it, it might be helpful and certainly helpful for specific populations. And so that's why it's really important to um, discuss these things with your clinician um, and have an individualized kind of care plan for that. Yeah, I think that's a great overview. And this is something that you see, like if somebody is seeing a headline on the news that seems you know out of proportion, too good to be true, too bad to be true. I think going back and looking at 
what is the absolute risk and what is the relative risk, you know, seeing how many people were in the study and then how many people had the expected or predicted outcome. I think that's really useful for people to put it in context and say, okay, you know, is this really as they're conveying it or is this being, you know, inflated to some degree just with the use of statistics? Yeah, I think it's something um, that we everybody should be aware of and cautious of um, for all things in the news. I think that's a major educational lacking in the United States is our statistical understanding, just basic statistics um, and questioning some of the, the data that comes across, um, yeah, in, in the general news. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And now I'm really excited to kind of get into the technology side of healthcare, you know, because this is where you've done some, you know, I think really important work and kind of leveraging what a, a clinician or provider is able to do um, because our memories are only so good. Um, I remember reading a book, I believe it's called The Checklist Manifesto uh, by a, a medical doctor. And you know, it talked about how, you know, what for one, you know, the research lags and in getting incorporated into guidelines. Uh, but then the value of checklists was really the other part of that. You know, we saw when this was introduced in surgical settings, you know, complication rates go way down. So, you know, used to read about, you know, somebody, oh, they amputated the wrong arm, you know, these, these kind of one-off situations that should never happen. And with the implementation of, of checklists, we see complications across the board go way down. So how do some of those things apply to, you know, like the, let's say the primary care situation, or if we're looking at preventive medicine, kind of what you're incorporating with the use of the electronic health record and the tools that are built in there to really empower providers and clinicians to take better care of their patients. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this. This is um, where I've really found my passion in healthcare and where I think um, I can have a really big impact. Healthcare in the last 50 years has become way more complex than what it was. The amount of we've gotten a lot better at diagnosing things and um, identifying diseases. And so just the amount of diseases are there's more of them than there were 25 years ago and certainly than 50 years ago. Same thing with the medications, the, the amount of medications, the amount of medication classes that clinicians are supposed to um, be aware of and understand how to prescribe have increased dramatically. And I think they're increasing at the same time, that clinician workload is also increasing with the electronic health record, um, and it's gotten to a point where a lot of clinicians are just completely burnt out, and we're seeing massive movement of physicians out, out of medicine, and the number one-sided reason is because of the electronic health record and um, this added extra work that it brings which is kind of surprising because when we first were told about the, EH, the electronic health record, the EHR, it was promised to be something that um, improved your workflow, helped with documentation, added checklists, just like you're talking about. Um, and it seems to have not lived up to those promises. So I think there's major potential in the EHRs um, for improvement. Um, I think one of the, the big issues is information overload and clinicians now are really spending a lot of time trying to differentiate signal versus noise. So things that don't really help versus identifying that the, the signal that they do want to identify. Um, another thing is alert fatigue, this, this phrase alert fatigue, which is when you're constantly getting battered by alerts popping up, eventually you just start ignoring them and then the alerts become pointless. Um, and we see a lot of that, how the, the EHRs are, are built. Um, and then just a lot of documentation um, that is required in the EHRs. The EHRs are 
kind of just a digitized cash register. That's how they were originally built for billing. And somehow we decided that they were going to be used for clinical documentation as well. And so a lot of the things that doctors are doing are just for, for billing purposes. Um, and so I'm interested in, in building systems that uh, decrease the information overload, decrease the amount of alert fatigue, and decrease the amount of unneeded, unnecessary work that clinicians have to do so they can spend more time face-to-face -face with their patient, which is becoming less and less often. Um, so, so one thing that I, or how I started in becoming interested in this was building these clinical decision support tools, which is um, a, a tool that kind of recommends uh, a care pathway for a physician. Um, and you can apply these uh to patient data. So how we had kind of set these up is this is before the pandemic and a lot of people weren't doing telemedicine stuff yet, but I was noticing a lot of patients were, were missing their appointments when they were coming into um, just the outpatient hospital for their chronic diseases, the, sorry, the outpatient clinic for their chronic diseases, and then we're not getting the care they needed. And then we're getting admitted to the hospital for a diabetes exacerbation or a CHF exacerbation, something we totally could have prevented and, and managed in an outpatient setting. And so it costs more, it's, it's more dangerous for them to be in the hospital. Um, and, and it's just uncomfortable. And so we developed this tool that we were collecting information about a patient's diabetes remotely through um, a questionnaire, structuring that in a note and providing that to the to the physician, uh, and then recommending a change in their insulin based on that. Um, so it was data collection, it was data organization and processing, um, and then a recommendation tool. Um, None of that requires any physician work. All I needed was to view this at the end and make the decision. So it, the idea was to, to speed up clinician time um, and improve, the, improve the, the quality of the information coming in. So that's kind of one example of how clinical decision support uh, can be used. I think the other thing that's kind of more on the user-centric side, I think on the um, more analytic side, I'm really excited about registries and um, kind of querying databases from the top for specific uh, patient characteristics and identifying patients um, that might benefit from a certain intervention that way. I think um, computers and algorithms can identify patterns in patients that might not seem so obvious uh, to clinicians. Um, and so I think this is a big way that uh, healthcare is going to be utilizing in information and, and data science in the future uh, to improve care for people. Yeah, that, that diabetes example you gave it really knocks it out of the park because it's way better to be able to collect that data in an objective fashion remotely than, you know, the patient, you know, getting on the phone with the nurse or coming into the clinic and telling you, yeah, my blood sugars have been doing good. Um, and a lot of times good means different things to different patients because they don't have the same clinical background that we do as providers. And, you know, talking about the alert fatigue uh, takes me back to my nursing days in the hospital as an RN with alarm fatigue where, you know, you have the bed alarms because we don't want people to fall. And then I, I think it was like an astronomical number, something like 90% of those are not actually being set off in situations where there actually is a risk for a fall. So, you know, we see kind of the same thing, the same patterns where people do get desensitized to that, and then it will delay the action or delay that desired outcome, which would be either preventing the patient from a fall or you know, preventing a patient from perhaps, you know, clinical lead deteriorating based on alert for, you know, a lab value, something of that nature. Uh, so I think that's really interesting um, with the diabetes. And um, as far as striking that balance uh, between, you know, what helps the provider and then what hinders the provider, 
there was another headline that you and I had chatted about just a bit um, where, you know, physicians need 27 hours a day to deliver guideline-based care. So obviously your goal is to shrink that time requirement. I think this is probably a little bit exaggerated with just for the headline, but, you know, how do you find what those inefficiencies are and eliminate those um, and then get those high value tools, just like you talked about, you know, saving time in diabetes management? Um, identifying those opportunities is uh, just by talking with people um, or running into those issues myself. Um, that's why I've decided to stay in clinical care. And I, I mean, I really like seeing patients, but I also really like the experience of running into issues in the electronic health record or identifying um, opportunities for kind of speeding up or improving how that evidence-based care can be delivered. Um, but I think really it's the the end users, the the, the docs, the, the providers who are there one-on-one -on -one with the patient who are running into these issues every single day, they have the best insight um, into some of these, um, these opportunities. And I think there's lots of ways that we can, we can optimize that and, and change kind of care pathways or use dynamic notes um, to only show the clinician information that they need and, and change the uh, available options so that it's um, evidence-based. Now, some, there is some pushback to this because... Um, there's kind of been a culture in medicine, particularly in the past of like the art of medicine and clinicians really wanting autonomy to choose what they want. And kind of going back to our earlier conversation um, about the importance of individualizing care plans, uh, clinicians sh should have the opportunity um, to customize a care plan with a patient. And ultimately it is up to patient what they want. Um, and so I don't think as a system, we should be completely restricting how uh, providers are prescribing things or providing their care. Um, but there are major opportunities with how we can um, be changing the workflow and displaying information uh, to limit some of that extra work. So 27 hours to provide evidence-based care. I think a lot of that is collecting the information and then going to the evidence and comparing um, the patient characteristics to uh, the study population and then seeing that that applies and then kind of coming back. All of that, I think, can be, um, I don't know if it's automated, but I think it can be augmented through technology and uh, optimized in a way that uh, kind of brings that information to the clinician right there where they're working so they're not having to exit, um, log into something else um, and kind of lose their train of thought uh, to kind of optimize, yeah, how quickly and efficiently they're able to pull that evidence-based medicine uh, into their actual care plan. Yeah, and I think it's a lot of this is done automatically on a subconscious level. You know, people have been practicing for a period of time and you just you're operating subconsciously because you have the knowledge, you've seen this a hundred times. Um, and then that the EHR and the technology built in could kind of be an expansion of that because we know that people don't always operate at 100% efficiency subconsciously. If someone gets interrupted, you know, things do get missed. So having that there is kind of a backup, I, I think is really valuable. Um, and then you were speaking a little bit earlier about the, you know, sort of machines picking out patterns um, that, that humans don't always look at, especially if they have a lot of data to pull from and you get into like true machine learning. Um, and some of the data that I've seen come out there talks about, um, in particular in the field of radiology, right? Because, you know, radiologists are, you know, a doctor's doctor, in my opinion, they know their anatomy, you know, very, very well. And they're able to see things that are just amazing to me. Um, and then every once in a while, you'll see a study where, you know, radiologists were pitted against AI and the AI comes out, you know, slightly better. So do you see some sort of like AI augmentation there where people would be you know, potentially, you know, just throwing this out there where 
you know, a read comes back as negative and then it gets flagged by an AI, say, hey, give this a second look. It highlights a region or are there things like that that are being developed at this time? Yes, there certainly are. There's a lot of interest in machine learning um, in healthcare. Um, generally, I'm fairly skeptical about some of these promises. Um, a lot of the training data that they use is not generalizable to the general population. And so these tools are, are built for a system. So we have, I think we've developed eight AI tools at UCLA um, and all eight of them are functioning in our system. But I am really suspicious about how generalizable that would be at a different health system. Like if, if Johns Hopkins could take that and use it in their population, um, I think it's been built for the UCLA system and, and is kind of stuck into that. So kind of first off, I'm skeptical about the generalizability of, of some of these tools. Um, but I have seen a lot of success in them for specifically radiology. Um, and in radiology, it seems to, you kind of mentioned uh, a human scene at first, and then the radiology, um, the AI looking at it after. The pattern seems to be, um, or there's more interest in using AI to screen things first and flag obvious cases um, or ones that's questioned questionable, and then uh, using a human to make the, the final decision. Uh, the human might... Um, have a little more context or think about it in a clinical manner that the, the machine learning really, really can't do. Um, the one interesting thing, I, I did spend some time building machine learning tools for radiology. And the one thing to note, and, and you kind of brought it up when you're talking about um, patterns that humans can't recognize is some of these machine learning tools, depending on what algorithm you're using are, are really deep learning. And so you don't know what it's looking for. It could be looking for anything. So we had developed an x-ray tool that was uh, identifying tuberculosis in, in patients who are being admitted to the, the Cook County prison system. And so every patient got given a chest x-ray. And so the radiologist had to read hundreds of x-rays a day. And for the most part, they were all negative and there were a few that might have tuberculosis. And so we built a tool that was um, identifying that and by the time we had resulted it and we're looking into the results, um, it was it was quanti it was categorizing patients if they had tuberculosis or not based on the type of X-ray machine that was used and unrelated to the picture. And so it was taking this like obscure variable that we didn't even consider and completely unrelated to if the patient has tuberculosis or not, and adding that as a, a pretty significant variable. So I think there's big limitations and we should be pretty cautious about it. Um, but I think there's some opportunities for it. Probably the best AI tool that I've seen or machine learning tool is uh, at Johns Hopkins and it's the uh, adjusted care group score. Um, and it predicts risk, um, outcome risk and financial risk of a uh, patient based on some of their diseases. Um, and so they sell that to different health systems and public health departments. Um, and so it takes in hundreds of different variables um, from what diseases you have to your most recent hemoglobin A1C to even like your zip code and like the amount of pollution in your, your area and takes all that information in and kind of like predict um, how much uh, money you're going to end up spending in a health system over the next year. Um, so, so these organizations are able to kind of better plan. Um, so I think there's unique, cool opportunities for it, uh, but I don't think it's a, a golden ticket that can be used for everything. Yeah, and no, that's a really interesting example with the AI getting a sort of confused, uh, if we can use that term, between the x-ray machines versus looking for the actual tuberculosis, because it's really, um, I think, an autonomously driven process as far as the, you know, the AI is doing its thing. Um, and then the, there is some human input there. Um, and then 
as you mentioned, even prior to that, you know, like with the, the AI tools you've developed at UCLA, you know, I don't think you can extrapolate those. Totally agree with you. Like if you put those in a cornfield in rural Midwest, you know, I don't think you're going to get the same value out of that. So, you know, I think that's a good thing for like these big academic centers. There's probably a lot of overlap there. So like a place like John Hopkins, UCLA, these big centers can probably get some value from, you know, those tools, like you talked about predicting kind of what the community needs are going to be. Um, and then you know, preparing accordingly, maybe they have you know, too many resources in a given area or not enough resources in another area, that sort of thing. You know, so I think this has been really interesting. Um, are there other, any other like important points or any like, kind of recaps from this that we think people should take away from the conversation? I think the, the one other thing I wanted to say um, about some of the informatics tools is um, in these, these larger health systems like I've been working in, um, it's, it's kind of hard to develop some of these more innovative things um, because you need a way of paying for it all. You need it to be reimbursed by health insurance. And if it's not, you can't, it's hard to get leadership involved in those things. And so some of the really cool informatics related tools like continuous glucose monitoring and digital food logs and um, kind of continuous sleep monitoring and a lot of the wearable technology stuff is not being used by health systems yet. Um, and I think there's a lot of potential to, to use that information because it's continuous data. It's, it's every single day. Um, and it could be automatically uploaded. It doesn't require an, uh, an encounter to do. Um, and so that's why uh, these practices like Gillette Health, these kind of unique direct primary care practices that are able to provide those things because they're focused on outcomes as opposed to billing insurance, um, gives an opportunity to both patients and physicians, clinicians to be involved with this kind of innovative care um, with all this extra data that you normally don't get in a kind of the general kind of traditional clinical care. Um, so that's one thing that's drew me, drawn me to Gillette Health um, and some of these other practices. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because when you have a big health system, I mean, you have the, you know, the benefit of having resources and, you know, I, I assume a large patient population in the data there, but you don't have a lot of flexibility, like, you know, getting anything done seems to be cumbersome, the larger the organization is. When you have a, you know, a smaller organization that's really focused on just delivering value and creating things that are going to be beneficial for our, you know, patients outcomes, which at the end of the day is, you know, happier, healthier, longer lives. Um, I think that's where we really shine. And, and we've talked about some of those things that we plan to build in the future. So, I mean, I am really excited for what's going on with you know, us at Gillette Health and also for kind of what's going on in the horizon. Like you mentioned, maybe some of these, you know, food diaries or CGM data will be implemented on a, a broad scale across multiple healthcare organizations you know, if and when they see some smaller organizations having a lot of excess and, and driving that benefit. Yeah, well, I hope that we can do that at Gillette Health and, and really um, develop some evidence so that the larger health systems can get on board. Yeah, I'm excited to do that. Well, Taylor, uh, Dr. Martin, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a really fun conversation for me. And I think our listeners are going to get a lot of value about this. We talked about a lot of exciting topics. So thanks so much again. Likewise, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret 
and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.